Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 29, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Today's show, the city of Irvine's Craig Ream, will tantalize you with the upcoming solar decathlon returning to the Great Park. The following week, Team OC will talk about building their structure at the decathlon's competition. Also on today's show, a worthy backstory along with hefty science comes from Dr. Leslie Thompson, professor of psychiatry, human behavior, neurobiology, and behavior and biological chemistry at UCI. This interview in advance of the Dean's Distinguished Lecture featuring her October 11 le- speech there at UCI. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Craig Ream, Director of Public Affairs and Communications at the City of Irvine, is here to talk about the particular, the major event, the biannual U.S. Department of Energy Solar Decathlon, opening the end of next week. He has a bachelor's degree in journalism from Cal Poly San Obispo and a master's degree in management from the University of Redlands. He was a reporter and editor for newspapers and Orange County-based magazine group for more than 25 years and joined the city of Irvine just 2008. He's practically a veteran there now. It's a pleasure to get a peek behind the curtain around that will be, it's going to be pulled away in earnest next week. Ta-da! Welcome to Ask a Leader, Craig Reams. Thank you. Well, I know that you've been putting out the words, so now it's time for Ask a Leader to do a few laps around the exhibition. Certainly more of an institution being the second time that Irvine will be hosting this fabulous installation. Now the Irvine Fine Arts Center is already hosting some teasers. Then the real show opens in earnest October 8th. That's the best petting zoo I could come up with, and it's free. So who do we get to thank for this, Craig? Well, we get to thank the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy, and we get to thank the Irvine uh, City Council, uh, the the Department of Energy for putting on this event every two years, and for the Irvine City Council for support for supporting the event for a second time, and approving uh, uh, the city to host it for a second time. And the Solar Decathlon will, as you said, will be October eighth through eleventh, and October fifteenth through eighteenth. A uh, free event at the Orange County Great Park, and uh, we we hope that uh, that uh, everyone that's listening will go. And in in part because this is the first time ever that a local team has competed in the Solar Decathlon, and Team Orange County is comprised of students from your campus, UC Irvine, as well as Irvine Valley College, Chapman University, and Saddleback College. So the best of the best have gotten together from those four campuses to design. Um, create and build a, uh, a fully functioning solar house. It will be one of the 14 fully functioning solar houses sitting there at our festival site at the Great Park uh, awaiting free public tours. And, and one of the wonderful things about that, Claudia, is the students themselves are the tour guides. And so when you go into a solar house and each one's different, and you ask them, why did you do that? What about the solar panels there? 
what about the skylight there and what kind of low energy appliances do you use? The students themselves will be able to answer that question because they're the ones that came up with the ideas. And you don't steal my thunder because there is so much thunder clapping around this decathlon. They will be featured in the uh, my show next week, uh, OC Team. There's a couple of de- decathletes that will be working around the hammering and nailing and all that that's going on. There, the rollout just began yesterday, or the the roll on that they uh, the gates opened and all of the elements of each of these solar decathlon structures. They were able to start staging all of their materials that have been. Uh, pre-assembled to a certain extent and now uh, created an, along that lovely tarmac. That was, it really worked uh, last decathlon, I know. So, Yeah, no, it's a good point. Yeah, I was there at 7 a.m. when they, they did the ribbon cutting yes. and the students uh, uh, came, uh, came on to uh, the festival site. The tractor trailers rolled in with their houses and just imagine they'll be spending the next 10 days uh, literally uh, rebuilding the houses that they have already built once to test them at their respective campuses around the world. And uh, they'll they'll get to tell us that they're the only really preponderant of undergraduates in their group, and it's the first time they've dev- ever done anything like this. So they'll have a lot to uh, talk about. Well, as we said that yesterday, the crew started rolling uh, with their lovely cutting edge net zero homes. Well, Craig, what other attractions are going to be presented at the Solar Decathlon Village? Well, that, that's a little bit like asking what other attractions are there at Disneyland. I mean, the, the, the attraction is the Solar Decathlon Village itself, the 14 houses and the, and the nearly 800 students. There's not much need for much more. However, that being said, uh, city, the city of Irvine is, uh, is producing a, a children's activities area uh, right next to the festival site there at the Great Park uh, on both of the weekends in which the uh, Solar Decathlon is held. And that's really to, to allow children and uh, and their families to to uh, romp around uh, in our um, at a great park, uh, enjoy the farm and food lab, which will have worms and chickens and more, and super inflatables and face painting balloon artists. Art, the artist studio will be open for crafts. There will be lawn games. The carousel will be spinning uh, for for ridership, and so it 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 really creates an entire family uh, opportunity. Well, one thing I recall from the last solar, de- the first one here in Irvine two years ago, there was also that side attraction, part of the solar decathlon. The Department of Engineering here at UCI had this uh, car, alternative car sh- uh, show and race, but there won't be any other components like that this particular year. And I'm, I'm not taken away at all from the houses, but I just wanted to, start, I wasn't able to run down any other elements like that from two years ago. You were correct. Okay, so, well, uh, that's, but there's plenty. And so when I was looking over what was going on, I was thinking, I recommend at a minimum, my recommendation for the Solar Decathlon, it's it's four hours, and that's just for your first trip. What's your recommendation, Craig? You know, you are spot on. Uh, Perhaps one of the surprises of the Solar Decathlon 2013 when we first held it in the Great Park was that it it, it takes a while. but it in, a, in a wonderful way, and people that think that they can come and sort of do it in an hour will be uh, dissatisfied with their uh, uh, time constraints. It, it really is a three- to five-hour experience to, to go through the number of houses that you want to, to meet the students. And remember, these are aspiring 
engineers and architects, urban planners, and, and, and future home builders. They are so interesting. And they come from not only UCI, but from Rome and from Panama, Honduras, from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I have to throw in my alma mater. From right. Clemson University, from Missouri University, from New York City College of Technology. They come from around the country and around the world. They are so interesting. You don't want to go into a house and rush through it. And so you need the time period that you, you suggested to really enjoy it. And you can do it at a leisurely pace. So so plan three to five hours is, is my recommendation. And it says uh, on the lovely Inside Irvine magazine that we all received probably about a month ago, uh, and page, you can just tear out page six and smack it on your refrigerator, folks, and keep referring to that what, and you're making your plans in the next couple of weeks. But, yeah, it talks about the 20 minute tour but it's it's much much more than that in each one of those houses you're really gawking it they're elegant that's not just leading edge net zero but some really artful really i mean home porn kind of beautiful kinds of uh, interiors for for people to consider how we can live yeah and and you know the the houses uh they are in in some ways the houses of the future, but you're really looking at the houses of the present because these are houses that can be that can be built and, and streamlined today. And 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 you're absolutely right. One of the the houses that I most enjoyed in 2013 yes. was from Caltech. It was a house that that split apart on rails. So it was when you put it together, you had a fully formed 650 square foot house. When you separated the two elements with the with the dining and the plumbing on one end and the sleeping and the studying on the other you had in the middle a uh, a courtyard separating the two and they and that house was literally on rails and so what i enjoyed doing was standing outside and watching the house come together and watching the house come apart and that's some of the experience that one gets here when uh, when you go through 14 distinct solar houses uh, created by uh, you know 14 distinct teams they're very distinct they're, and they're all trying to accomplish a different purpose as in the, the again we're going to go back because i don't know what the, what we're going to see when i get my my first of i'm i'm, I'm counting on three trips i just three trips Wonderful. just got me started that last time but but they're they're trying to solve different problems one was about a rapidly uh, mobilizing housing stock after a, a disaster occurred, that was a Missouri, I think, entrance, and there, there's, and one had some kind of a, a room that could, a person could go into to ward, uh, ward off any kind of uh, major catastrophe blowing through. Is what do they call it? A safe room or something like that? They That's all, correct. They yeah. all, and like you said, and the 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 structure that literally pulled apart on those rails to create that outdoor room anew between the two segments that they had built. It's just everyone is solving a little bit different. And this, uh, the Team OC is going to be talking about how they, they this, it's the solar, but they're going to talk a lot more about, but the Casa del Sol and how they're going to sort of bring, make the most of the, the environment and the 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 micro-macro the climate of this area. Oh, and one other purpose was, I remember last uh time was to create a maximal uh, uh, accessibility. It was going to be donated to a San Diego uh, homeless veteran household so that everybody had a whole different uh, purpose to cover. And it was just a marvel. And I know they're going to do it in as many 14 different ways this coming up. Well, if you're tuned, if you're just tuning in now, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is City of Irvine's Public Affairs Director, Craig Ream, presenting this year's exhibition, The Solar Decathlon, Solar Decathlon 2015. Well, I know it's 
it's a Department of Energy show, as you said, but what's the city bringing to this besides real estate? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't downplay the real estate, and I just say no, that because holding a, a huge international event at the immense Orange County Great Park is really perfect for this event because it's hard to duplicate in terms of land availability anywhere else. We're we're providing as host a 17-acre festival site that will comfortably fit the Soldier Cathlon Village along with acres and acres of parking. But that said, we, we, we fully expect to repeat what we as a city accomplished uh, in 2013 when we first held this in, in the first time it was held outside of, of Washington, D.C., and 64,000 people attended here. But first and foremost, most importantly, the Irvine City Council supporting hosting this event for a second time. But we also bring expertise in planning and programming, permitting and transportation, IT and marketing skills to this mammoth uh, undertaking. That's and really on top of that, we also bring uh, public safety expertise. In fact, just yesterday, we announced that the city of Irvine is the safest city of more than 100,000 population in the country yet again in terms of FBI statistics regarding violent crime. And, and that's important because you want to hold a solo decathlon with thousands of people will be descending in a, in a safe community. And as I shared with you, we'll have the children's activities area right. as well on weekends, which will really draw the families. Well, you did mention two years ago uh, that it was it was a first away from the Washington Mall, and two years ago was when there was a government shutdown. It was our, to our benefit, the the country's the Department of Energy's benefit that the show, the decathlon event, was staged here, where there was a, a very minimal impact of the government shutdown on this exhibition. Uh, th that's correct, and that was really. Uh City staff and others uh, stepping up. Uh, an executive from the Orange County Register, Steve Cherm, took over as uh, as host for a couple of the awards uh, programs and just did a, a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful, uh, a wonderful job uh, doing that. And and um, be nice to have a full show this right. time and and uh, and moving forward with that. So. Tell us how far away some of these visitors come last time, so we can know how international uh, this staging is. Well, let me let me first tell you about uh, next week's uh, event and yes. who will be there starting okay. um, October eighth, and that is teams are coming from Panama and Honduras, Italy and Germany, because there are teams competing from those countries, and of course, uh, visitors will come from throughout the Southern California region uh, uh, as they did. Uh, um, uh, last time, because in, in, in 2013, uh, we, we drew from the entire region. I remember having a nice conversations with people from San Diego, and of course, uh, they'll come from L.A. County and Inland Empire, and the winning team in 2013 was from Austria. Right. They had a huge contingent of supporters, probably about 150 people, not, not counting the team members. And so you, you'll have the same kind of of, uh, of of international turnout this time because in, uh, universities as close as uh, UC Irvine will bring people, and of course Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. There's Cal State Sacramento. Uh, there is a there's a, a team coming from Buffalo. There's a team coming from Vermont. Uh, UC uh, UC Davis will be here. Uh, Vanderbilt University, West Virginia University. So uh, there will be, uh, and they all they all bring their contingent of families, friends, and fellow students, and so it really becomes a, an international uh, potpourri of, uh, of visitors. And did uh, Irvine have any kind of indication of what kind of uh, revenue that this brought to the city? Yeah, in, in, yes, in, in, um, 
uh, after the 2013 event, uh, city staff uh, prepared a uh, economic uh, impact report. Uh, really, the only one that's ever been done after a uh, U.S.-based uh, solar decathlon, and and that uh, report uh, estimated an 11 million dollar economic impact for the city of Irvine. Wow. All right. I, I thought it would be high. That's even yeah. sort of see what I would have guessed. So what is in with the paperwork? Are, is Irvine applying for year number three? For well, my answer to that is the deadline to apply is October 29th. So does it help that the constituents lobby the city council to make this happen one more time? All I can tell you is the deadline to apply is October 29th. Okay, thank you, Craig Ream, Department of the the, uh, Public Affairs Director in that capacity. Well, it starts, as we were talking about, next Thursday, October 8th. So that for the public viewings, it's uh, October 8th through 11. That's Thursday through Sunday of that week. And the following week, October 15th through 18. And the hours are from 11 in the morning till 7 in the evening. Right there at the Orange County Great Park, at, free event. And it's the solardecathlon.gov is where to go for more details than you're hearing from us. And um, I just, well, I, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that the folks can... Uh, take that October 30 deadline seriously and figure out how we could uh, make it happen again. Craig Ream, Director of Irvine's Public Affairs Department there, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today about the Solar Decathlon 2015. Good luck in Irvine holding down the fort for the Department of Energy, and thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Claudia, and and, uh, I may see you and others at the Festival of Discovery at UCI, where I'll be sharing a booth with Team Orange County this Saturday. I'll look for it, because now I know from your press release now what you look like, though. We'll do that. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll be right back with Dr. Leslie Thompson, all the work she's doing mightily on Huntington's disease. Be right back. Don't go away. Well, summer's over, but researching continues because it has to. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest, and for the remainder of the hour, is Dr. Leslie Thompson, Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior, Neurobiology and Behavior and Biological Chemistry at UCI, speaking to us in advance of her Dean's Distinguished Lecture, Huntington's Disease, A Race Against Time. That's going to be Tuesday, October 13, 4 o'clock, the Crystal Cove Auditorium at UC Irvine Student Center. Huntington's disease is a genetic (laughs) progressive neurodegenerative disorder, which she'll talk about in much more detail today. A world-renowned scientist, Professor Thompson has pursued Huntington's disease from now on, HD, a research for most of her career with collaboration between scientists and HD families serving as cornerstone of the work. Particular ventures include the Hereditary Disease Foundation, and Venezuela's Huntington's Disease Project. The known genetic cause of HD and its many parallels with other neurodegenerative diseases mean that insights from HD research may also, thankfully, increase our understanding of the causes and progression of other diseases, including ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. Dr. Thompson earned her undergraduate work at 
UC San Diego and her PhD at UC Irvine. Leslie, Dr. Leslie Thompson to me, welcome to Ask a Leader. Well, thank you very much, Claudia. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so glad. And before we all head into all the important science, just a little bit about your formative years, something that sure. I'm so tempted to ask scientists, especially women. What did you do with yourself or what were you allowed or encouraged to do at home in the classroom? Well, growing up, I was sort of one of those typical um, kids who enjoyed science and, believe it or not, was in my basement in Wisconsin with a microscope and a chemistry set, and I just loved it. And then I had these formative teachers that encouraged us in science. I remember in ninth grade, a, a science teacher who was just amazing, and I thought this was wonderful. So you were free to, to roam downstairs, and you yep. chipped away, and there was always that stellar one teacher in your school system that nurtured your curiosity. Very much, very much. And then I moved to Mexico when I was in high school and <coughs> went to high school there. And Where in Mexico? In Guadalajara. Okay. And that was also very formative because it, it nurtured my desire to work in a, the health field and, and do something that might make a difference to people's health. Because of the public issues that you saw yeah. around you? Public yeah. Health? Okay. Oh, wow. Well, now, Dr. Thompson, tell us exactly what Huntington's disease is the symptoms, and how it affects a, a, a patient, how a patient inherits this gene mutation. Sure. Uh, it's an absolutely devastating disease. It typically strikes in the prime of life. So like. individuals are between the ages of 35 and 50. They've typically had their children. Um, and because it's genetic, their children are now 50% at risk. So somebody who, who has the disease gene. And <coughs> it's... Um, a number of symptoms, it's almost like the worst of so many diseases put together. It has uh, psychiatric symptoms, so often personality changes, depression, a lot of things that, that change. Quite often you'll hear children say, Dad's personality changed. He, he's not the same as I knew him before. Um, but it's insidious. They don't know. They think there's something wrong with them. Exactly. They're looking for some, some, I don't know, substance yeah. interaction. Uh, yeah, quite often you just have no idea what it, what's going on. <clears throat> and then there's also cognitive issues. So you can't, um, people can't perform their daily tasks. They can't do their jobs. They can't take care of their children. And that just slowly, as you said, it just slowly starts and builds and builds. And then there's a movement component. Typically, it was called Huntington's Korea because there's these sort of dance-like movements that are uncontrolled. And, and quite often, individuals will be walking down the street um, with these sort of jerking movements and they, they stagger. They, they basically look like they're intoxicated walking down the street and people get arrested or they'll be misunderstood of what's going on. Uh, and so it's really devastating from those aspects. And it just keeps progressing, typically lasts 15 to 20 years um, from when it's diagnosed. And uh, people pass away from aspiration pneumonia or from falls, so from from consequences of having the disease. But it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse until ultimately people are bedridden. So let's get to what to do about it because there's no treatment right. and there's no cure. <laughs> right. And there's, as I understand, there's a 50-50 chance that yes. families... Uh, that offspring are going to inherit that. And I, and I just want to step aside that we know that Woody Guthrie was probably the most high-profile person with yes. that. And so uh, I'm just thinking we would have had a lot more folk songs. We would have had maybe more Arlo's, yep, possibly. Absolutely. And, and that's just one family, not to mention all the other families that have been sort of their potential, potential ratcheted down from this. So, yes. so what, what uh, does 
detection get a person if there's no treatment and there is no cure? So that's a great question, and it's one that really um, haunts families in some ways. Is it, As you mentioned, so if a parent inherits, has the disease gene and only takes one copy of that gene, that can be passed up down, and it, you have a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. <coughs> so... Um, and typically you're taking care of your parent at the time you watch this happen, and so you know what this is going to look like. Now there's no what's called disease-modifying treatment. So there's, some, there's things that you can do, such as antidepressants for the depression. There's now some drugs that help with the movement, but there's nothing oh, really? that changes the course of the disease, slows it down, prevents it, anything. So quite often, you know, people really come to this point, and even if they might think they want to get tested, when they get to that point of making that decision, they, m- they may decide not to. I've had one person tell me it took away hope to get tested. But then a lot of people decide to get tested, especially for family planning reasons. And one right. of the pluses we have is that because we do know the gene, people can go through in vitro fertilization and, and only implant embryos that don't carry the disease gene. So you can stop it in its tracks also from, for, for your own family. So you can get just enough, enough is shed from an embryo. Yeah, you can take one cell, test it, and implant the ones that that don't carry the disease gene. So that is not a natural selection, but that's a selection that uh, could sort of pair the herd from passing that down. Yeah, and we have a lot of families in Orange County who've who've done that, and they send me pictures at Christmas with their kids that will not get the disease. So that is one option. It's a very expensive option, and it's not available. Um, I think somewhere in the order of $30,000 to do okay. something like that. So it's an affluent <coughs> person's choice. So uh, up for as far as public health yeah. goes, it's not for everybody. There yeah. is a lot of community involvement now to try to make this more accessible or to potentially have somebody donate these occasionally, um, you know, fertility clinics and things. But, but it, is, it is an expensive test. So what we'd like to do is find a treatment. Right. Well, I, I want to talk, uh, your career, it's, uh, it's been one of epic challenges, which I'd like to plot as we lead up to some of the, the promising findings in your research. Nancy Wexler and you were out there horsing around in <laughs> Venezuela with the yeah. Hereditary Disease Foundation, uh, specifically in the Lake Maracaibo, is that what yes, you would call Maracaibo. it? Uh, pers- and then in pursuit of, uh, it's what was really an intense, a very dense gene pool that could explain important features of Huntington disease. What what were some challenges that you faced in that pursuit? Yeah. So Tell us about it. It was incredible. Um, so Nancy Wexler was, her father started the Hereditary Disease Foundation because her mother had Huntington's disease and she and her sister were at risk. So he started this, he really started the collaborative nature of the field because he would have these workshops with lots of scientists come in and join in and, and brainstorm about the disease. But Nancy had found a family down in the 70s in <clears throat> Lake Maracaibo that had a number of individuals with the gene or with the disease. So they started taking blood samples, skin samples, and and testing the DNA, trying to understand from the DNA itself what might be causing this disease. And because it was such a large population, which is what you need to do this type of research, um, ultimately they found a marker for it, and then ultimately the disease gene from using some of these blood samples. And so I got to participate in this right after the disease gene was cloned as part of that collaboration and uh, went down there and 
because I spoke Spanish from my time in high school okay, in Mexico. Okay, folks. That's the uh, portfolio is the yes, language where you're researching. That that was great, and so I took pedigree. I I got family histories. I learned about the families that that were donating their samples or going through <clears throat> the neuro exams for for this. But and, it was incredible. And I've seen this sort of pedigree work. Uh, you know, you've got your stick figure chart. You're taking yes. it to the field. Your clipboard to these families, and are they're they're forthcoming because they're they're pretty spooked about it. They want yeah. they want to give. Now. Yeah. When when Nancy started doing this at first, they they just thought she was insane. Why would this woman want our blood? You know. But they understood also that she was at risk for the same disease that they okay. were suffering from. So she it, spoke it, a different language. Yeah. So it made a huge difference. And then and they understood that we were trying to help ultimately so they were willing to do whatever it took and and they were just amazing the whole families would come you know they they had to work they had to do all these things they'd come to the clinic they'd talk to us for hours they'd they'd give blood samples they were great and this all you're sustained by doritos and spam yep okay. lots of doritos just, lots just, of spam oh, i don't know how you <laughs> did that part so so back there so um so you were able to get them on board and and uh, I don't know. What's it like, though, with such a... Like, you were saying uh, in preparation for this interview that these were families that started procreating at, yes. in early teens, <coughs> and they had many children. So yes. it's like... It's, yeah, and they, it's a little bit cousin-to-cousin uh, cousin kind of... Uh, they had a huge... It, it was the only... One of the only populations that had what are called homozygotes. So they had two copies of the gene, and that's really where people were able to understand that this was truly a dominant disease, that all you needed was one copy to manifest the disease. Two copies didn't really make it much worse. Okay. And the conditions were such, you know, these are very impoverished areas. They don't have, they don't have sewage, you know, sewers. They don't have any, a lot of the benefits of, of quality of life that we have. And they do, they have children starting when they're 13. They have 10 children. They, you know, you watch multiple generations getting sick. And the thing about Huntington's is, it, it has what's called anticipation. So subsequent generations can show the disease at an earlier age and more severe onset. So you start seeing that as well in Venezuela. So what advantage is it to have early detection? So because some people, I, they've made the case for this for, for any kind of genetic testing yes. and counseling. So you said, does that mean you just get to start the antidepressants earlier? And, and the Venezuelans, what do they get? Do, are they going to, do they have access to pharmaceuticals that take the edge off of this they, they have, depression? They have some access. So there was a, a clinic started called Casa Hogar, and it was a clinic to take care of HD patients. And so um, there's some, you know, just, just even good diet right? Good nutrition. You use HD individuals require about 3000 calories a day. You have this metabolic aspect of the disease that just requires a lot of intake of food. So things like that, nurturing types of things. But one of the big pluses of, of knowing the genetic status of, of understanding um, the disease at an earlier time point is we might be able to find what are called biomarkers. Okay. So there's a number of fa individuals in the U.S. and in all over the world in studies such as Predict HD, Enroll HD, where it's their studies of of what are the earliest symptoms you can identify through imaging of the brain or through markers in the blood, or whatever might show when the disease starts. Maybe not overtly, not by obvious symptoms, but even at the molecular level. Oh. Yeah, subclinically okay. when that starts. So the more we can learn, the more we can learn about when we should start intervening once we do have treatments that can change the course of disease. So the treatment now, so-called treatment, is dealing with 
the the high metabolic process with the depression anything else and the movement and, and the, the career and, right the career well i guess the movement is what probably is re- increasing that need that yeah that's part of it it doesn't explain all of it it's it's definitely there's a metabolic aspect to this just in, in the body itself that we're starting to understand so i'm just curious now venezuela had that pocket are, are there are have you noticed any sort of higher incidents in the united states when you start becoming familiar with the disease Mm -hmm. it's amazing how many people you meet who say my mother's friend had Huntington's disease I know somebody who had Huntington's disease I know a family with Huntington's disease there's there's a greater incidence than people realize until you start becoming familiar with it which is one of the reasons with this lecture too is is creating awareness about the disease itself so you still call it a rare disease though it's called a rare disease but it's really one in ten thousand it's it's up there with something like cystic fibrosis, it's it's not it so is rare. a it's not as rare as you might think. And is there like with with Parkinson's? There is a Parkinson. There are different kinds of Parkinson's. Some with dementia, some without. Does, yes. Does that is there are there different kinds of branches of Huntington's as well? Actually, that's a great question. It, there are. Um, it's surprising. There, there's so for instance, one of the families that I'm very close to, actually Francis Saldana, who's been involved in. Um, she and Linda Pimentel and building an organization called HD Care here on campus. It's a support, here. yeah, on okay. UCI campus. She has three children um, who've had HD. Two have passed away, and one's in hospice now. She's and surviving children that already process that. Know how she's surviving. Her husband died of it, and then she's gone through this with all three kids. Um, but one of them ha- manifested more of the psychiatric aspect. One had more of the movement, and one had the more juvenile, there's a juvenile onset, a younger onset form that looks more like Parkinson's disease, and her other daughter had those types of symptoms. So you do see a range of symptoms in which predominate, even within a given family. Actually, I think I've heard about that family, and the the folks at ICTS just had this slow sort of process of this one-way only kind of... of, um, outcome now i now i do recall and so what dr thompson would you let listeners know where they can get a hold get more information for hd care is that yeah there's a site h just to go hdcare.org and um you know there's there's organizations to the hereditary disease foundation huntington's disease society of america all of these organizations provide information um support groups treatment. We have an HD clinic here on campus that Dr. Neil Hermanowitz runs. And, um, you know, so there's lots of information and help available. We'll get into some of that. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Leslie Thompson, a world-renowned human genetics researcher at UCI. She focuses on Huntington's disease, the topic of which she'll be speaking at the Dean's Distinguished Lecture October 13th at the UCI Student Center. And she's talking about now there's the the research component and there's the uh, the, the clinical component. So tell us about where people can uh, either follow what's going on and contribute in terms of the the in the the research part. So there's your part and Dr. Hermanowitz's. So yes, so the clinical two different right, texts. right. Although we, the nice thing about HD, we all work very closely yes. together because ultimately we want to do some clinical trials here at UCI through Dr. Uh, Hermanowitz Clinic, and the families have been very invested. For instance, we do a lot of stem cell work here at UCI, and one of those areas is to take skin samples and turn them 
back, reprogram them back to a very early stage that they act like a stem cell, which can grow and divide indefinitely in a culture, but you can guide it into, say, a neuron, a brain cell, and then study it in a dish. The pluripotent The pluripotent stem cell. And they're just amazing. They've transformed the research landscape for all these neurodegenerative diseases. Well, for so many diseases, diabetes, everything. Okay. And um, so we partner very closely with the families, and they've donated... Um, you know, they've come into the clinic, donated a little skin biopsy, and then we've been able to use those to generate these cell lines that we then study in the lab. So it's a it's a definite partnership. Well, what I want to go back, and it's the, the timeline that's hopped a little bit here, but um, we I wanted to give credit where credit's due to you, um, as well as your mentor. Uh, you as a part of your amazing story, Dr. Thompson, you were completing your graduate work when your mentor, Dr. John Wasmuth, sudden death necessitated your keeping a lab from collapsing. What yeah. can you tell us about how you did that? Well, <laughs> a lot of help, but uh, this was during my postdoc, actually. It was when I was a, a senior postdoc in the lab, and it was. It was just a devastating time for all of us in the lab, and we wanted to preserve people's jobs and and keep the research going and i have to say we had so much support from the community from from people like francis collins at the nih from nih helping keep grant going for another year or two so while we placed people in jobs um hereditary disease foundation gave me my first grant at that time just to keep things going to start things up for my own work and just you know, the department, the school, everyone was amazing to try to help us all get through that. And this was before CIRM was developed, the yes. California Institute yes, of Regenerative well Medicine. Before. So we're, we're, we're in the timeline, folks. Yes. Trust, just stay with us here. A good 10 years it's before. A, a good, yes, <laughs> yeah. a good so. And but uh, and to uh, Dr. Wasmuth's uh, credit, he was a, a mentor that made you, helped you do things that you couldn't yes. do otherwise as a, yes. a person with a, a varied portfolio, researcher and mother. Yep, and I had two children during that time, and I really don't think I could have you know, been able to pursue, pursue the career I have without his support of, of the fact that I had a family and, and allowing some flexibility and all that. Um, and just, just being so, he, he was a very kind, collaborative person who really promoted everyone in his lab and also... He's the type of person that would walk into our collaborative research meetings with tubes of DNA and pass them around when wow. they hadn't, you know, been published or anything like that. He was just that type of person, and I think he set a precedent for for all of us to to follow in those footsteps. And that is a, a feature of yours as well. Definitely, you've been very collaborative, and that's one of the kinds of fe- the items in in your bio that you you may be uh, d- you were not so uh, possessive of your research and and that collaboration has meant that it's been very fertile yep. you're working with everybody all over the world on this Huntington yeah. disease yeah. race and it's really a joy it's it's just been wonderful to do that I have some of my you know my closest family it's almost like a, my closest friends and almost like a family are these researchers all over and it it's been it's been fun and it's been it's made the research move much, much more f- quickly. 
All right, so there's a, there's a lesson in this sort of thing, but uh, but there is a, there is a kind of a proprietary aspect in uh, clinical research. I guess uh, maybe you've been able to. Oh well, let's give let's give the Center for the California Institute for Regenerative Definitely. Medicine a plug because uh, if you had to be working with pharmaceutical companies, that collaboration and the the withholding would have been a wholly different thing, and you, there, this maybe the inroads would be a bit different. So it's definitely a little different. I don't want to, I don't, I mean, the collaborations with pharma now are, are very, very important because they have the compounds that you can then test and okay. they work very closely with you. But CIRM has allowed, I, I mean, we wouldn't be doing the stem cell research we're doing here at UCI without CIRM. It, it just wouldn't have ever happened from helping to pay for the infrastructure to build the building to allow us to build the labs that we have to use with, with the types of equipment and supplies we need for that. Um, we were able to recruit Peter Donovan here, yes. uh, who started the, cl- the center and uh, who they trained us all. There was a stem cell course that was funded by CIRM just to even train us all how to use this. So, so from the very basics and then to say the first grant I got was in 2008 to, to generate these IPS induced lines. pluripotent stem cells lines um, from HD individuals. That just wasn't on the radar without CIRM. And and where we've come now from that point, and that was just 2008 to now, is wow. just unbelievable. There's things that are actually going into the clinic that are set stem cell based. We have a grant from CIRM, a large grant that is um, to do some of the preclinical development of a stem cell derived uh, treatment option and to start taking that down the path for clinical development. And that that just wouldn't have happened. They've been amazing. All because the state of California yes. put up a bond, and some people weren't sure about sort of the accountability of all right. the mega bucks. But for you, that that there's been a huge yield. Oh, huge! And, and not only for HD and some of these diseases in ways that you wouldn't even anticipate. So, for instance, like like um, so, we had this HD, these set of HD lines, right? That led to funding from NIH to fund a consortium for HD to study, to use these types of pluripotent stem cell lines. That then has now led to a large center grant called the, the Library of Integrated Signatures for you, to generate cell signatures from, from motor neuron disease from patients with ALS. So it, it's moved and progressed and allowed all sorts of other things to happen while CIRM is still continuing to get things into the clinic. And I know sometimes people, they don't see how much has been done, but there has been an incredible amount of work done. And now we're really starting to, just starting to see the rewards of this, of of treatments going into the clinic. So is CIRM then self-sustaining? That bond is uh, there, it's a steady flow, it's a reliable amount of uh, resources for you to continue long term like uh, how far out f- for five I, years ten years they I th- I believe their plan they have um, money for the next several years okay but they're trying to figure out ways to, to refinance keep this, it. yeah to refinance this to keep it going which now would be an incredibly good time to keep this going well you've got the poster families yeah so um, yeah I, it's it's time to get them out there. And we know with the cells, stem cells and other cells, it's a, we have a huge need for 
science literacy yes. for people to understand yes. uh, the the importance. Of it. I'm not going any further with that because Cecilia Richards is taking care of that on the Capitol Hill this uh, morning. Oh, uh, good. With, with uh, def- in defense of uh, a particular cell line uh, that she's uh, been involved with. Well, um, and one of your colleagues has gone so far as to tell me that the center, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine (CIRM), is part of the, the the stem cell research as a kind of a mason dixon line of what what states are fully supporting this research because of their attitude their their the sort of the political culture around stem cells mm-hmm. and so it's uh, california's benefited beyond any other state's Absolutely. ventures they've really led the the charge i guess you could say and then and now some of the other states new york and others are are also um, working on this, but they really laid the groundwork and showed that you could do this. So we're the the pluripotent valley. We so are Silicon yes. Valley. We're pluripotent <laughs> valley here. Okay. All of yep. California is incredible. Pluripotent canyon. There we'll you go. It. It's more our our term here. Well, uh, for those of you who've just joined us, this is Ask a Leader on KUCI eighty eight point nine FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at benches, lab benches all over the world on the web at KUCI dot org. My guest. For this larger part of the hour is Dr. Leslie Thompson, a world-renowned human genetics researcher at UCI. She focuses, as you've been hearing, on Huntington's disease and has application with so many other neurodegenerative diseases. And she'll be talking about the breakthroughs and the trajectory that this research is on at the October 13 Dean's Distinguished Lecture. I think that's the Bioscience Dean. Yes, Ayala School. His endowed uh, <coughs> lecture series there. So let's, you've talked about the, the preclinical research and the clinical trials. Uh, there's the clinicaltrials.gov is where people could find out where mm-hmm. they could get involved. Is there a more direct place to yeah, go? Yeah, they can go into uh, Enroll HD or Huntington Study Group. And those both have, those. they have site websites with them that, uh, describe all the clinical trials going on. So I, I don't think we've stolen any thunder from your talk, because you're going to get no. into some pretty fancy, I'm sure, uh, PowerPoints with the explicit Hoping views to. of stem cells. Yes, like the yes. screens. Yeah, okay. So I, I wouldn't want to take away from that. Well, um, goodness, we've just about... I, I, well, tell us... Um, well, let's see. I don't know. We can't do a stem cell uh, PowerPoint right here with some uh, <laughs> some graphics. But um, uh, let's let you tell us why you are so positive about. We're, we're okay. We don't. We we know there's no such thing as a timeline. Research is, is a sort of an elastic thing. Some things can be very promising, but then maybe not mm-hmm. uh, materialize right. in a scientific sense. But just sure. How optimistic are you about? Maybe not uh, we sixty somethings, but maybe maybe the thirty the somethings getting some kind of a uh, at least a an abating kind yeah. of pharmaceutical. The next generation, definitely. The I am very optimistic and have a lot of hope for for where we are. And to, just to maybe use a very concrete example Please. is um, so the gene was cloned in 1994. The mutation identified at that time we had absolutely no idea what that did it, we, th- we thought we would but it had it wasn't similar to anything that anybody knew anything about at the time so there were years of just trying to understand what it what it does to gen- to make models where you stick the human gene into a cell or into a mouse or into a fruit fly or into something and study the disease and we learned that there's um, 
this this mutant protein, this bad protein accumulates in the cell. It just starts to build up. It starts to clump together, and it it begins to have all sorts of nasty effects on us on a brain cell. And so we're we took several years to start to learn what those effects are. And and now we're at this point where we can actually have ways in cells in in uh, in various studies to get rid of that species that that bad protein that starts to accumulate. So just the fact that we can start seeing that happen, and we have what are called therapeutic targets, okay, things that we might build a drug around. That's just huge. And that's, that's really um, advanced the field significantly. And then we now know more about what the normal protein does. So we know what, what its normal function is that goes wrong. And, and isn't working anyway more. So those are huge advances and set the stage for being able to get drugs or to um, prevent that protein from even getting made in the first place. There's a there's a drug trial going on right now that just started to okay. try to get rid of that protein. So there's lots of opportunity, and I it, there's profound hope right now. So people leaning a little closer to their speaker, who's eligible to participate in that? They've got to be HD positive, correct? For so that particular, yeah, for that particular one, and they, it was just, a, it's a very small phase one trial that's going on right now, and they've, they've already recruited for that, but there will be new trials that are coming up all the time, and again, Enroll HD, Huntington Study Group, those okay. are the structures that are there, and people can, and you know, enroll and, and be all set up for when clinical trials do happen. So, I guess what often happens with someone with a a positive gene identification is they contributing as a, a redemptive step yep. to take yep. when you're faced with something that's really yeah. all, this absolutely miserable. But even the family members who don't carry the mutation or you don't even need to know your status to participate in these. You don't have to learn it. You know, it's not, not like you participate and then you have to know what whether you have the mutation or not. People can contribute in all sorts of ways, family members, other other people in society. Okay. Well, I am so pleased to have you on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. Dr. Leslie Thompson. She is the go-to Huntington's disease genetic researcher at UCI. And in a, she's speaking in advance. T- the title of her talk that she'll be presenting at UCI's Crystal Cove Auditorium is Huntington's Disease, A Race Against Time. October 3rd, 2015, this is, I'm going to enable all you people that are working stiffs, chained to your desk, you are to be allowed to come down with a very nominal flu case at 4 o'clock on that uh, October 13th, so you won't miss that lecture. I'm, I'm not sure I can unchain from my desk, but I, I, I really would like to hear and see what you have to present. But I don't know, these are all filmed now, so people can maybe watch it on YouTube. Probably. Let's, let, I'm sure that... Uh, the good Dean LaFerla is going to make sure that it's captured. So it's been a pleasure, Dr. Leslie Thompson, Thank having you, you so on much. Ask a Leader today. Thank you. Well, this brings the show to a close. Next week, I'll have on local emeritus activists, Carl Mars and friends, returning to the show. They'll be talking about UN Day next week with what the local chapter will be doing. Also, We'll hear from two team members of Team OC toiling as we speak on their entry to the Solar Decathlon 2015 competition. I hear their hammers and screwdrivers from here, don't you? Well, that's my wrap, folks. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.